Hi, welcome to the OmniWin Project Podcast. My name is Duncan Autry. I am a conflict transformation catalyst, the creator of the OmniWin Project, and I am your host. The goal of the project here is to facilitate and accelerate the healing and evolution of our democratic systems and political culture so that together we can co-create a future that works for everyone. I believe the world is ready for things to change, and I know that we already have the answers to most of our problems, so I'm here to share them with you. And I want to say that the OmniWin Project is more than just a podcast. There are actually dozens of videos and essays that are accompanying this show, and you can find them all on Substack. To find that, you can go to omniwin.substack.com. And that way you can subscribe there and you won't miss a beat. And there's a whole lot more coming. But for now, let's get on with the show. This is part two of my conversation with Heidi and Guy Burgess. Heidi and Guy are co-directors of Beyond Intractability, which is an online platform with an incredible amount of information and resources for people who are interested in learning about how to transform conflict. In part one, we talked about the importance of mobilizing people across the conflict field to bring our support and skills into our current political crisis. In this part of the conversation, we dig deep into the complexities that arise when we actually try to make that happen. We talk about what it means to converse with our enemies. We talk about the challenge and value of developing empathy. And we talk about a current debate in the field about whether the principles of neutrality should apply in the face of oppression. And the possible risks of partisanship in facilitation and mediation. Thank you for listening to the OmniWin Project podcast. And now, please enjoy part two of my conversation with Guy and Heidi Burgess. What are some other ways you're thinking about bringing this kind of stuff to scale? Right, because, you know, and yeah, I mean, we can go deal with the symptom but then there's also like the scale issue. Are you thinking like a lot of baby things or are you thinking about any large scale shifts? There are big things you can do. And it's all this sort of fractal thing. The same sort of things happen at all scale. But an example, you know, there are this ranked choice voting might do a lot to change the structure of election away from something that favors extremes towards something that favors more moderate centrist view. And part of the test of making a democracy really work is what happens to the loser. If you have a democracy in which somebody who comes up with this 51% really can hammer the other side, then all elections become absolutely positively you just can't lose. And once that's the case, then you will use any and all means available to win. And if you have to go outside of the norms and laws of democracy, so be it. If it has to be violent, so be it. So the real key is, if you think you're going to win, is to reassure the losers that their interests will be protected, that you're not going to be crazy about this. One of the speeches that I always played for our students was King's I Have a Dream speech. And a big part of that was reassuring people that, you know, this was not going to be a continuing demand and we're always going to be angry and we're, there, there's no way through this. 
was a relatively tightly focused set of policy changes that he wanted and they got with the Civil Rights Act. And it wasn't this open-ended, long-term hostility. And that's part of why we're in trouble at the moment. But giving losers in a democracy a future that they can really look forward to, not grudgingly accept, is a big part of making it work. And this requires thinking of democracy in terms of coexistence, mutual tolerance, respect rather than having your views, the right views, prevail. Another story that links to that that was really powerful for me is that we saw a talk that was given a couple of years ago by a fellow named Ibrahim Rasool, who was the ambassador to the United States from South Africa for many years. And he came back to the U.S. a couple of years ago and was giving a talk at the U.S. She was, for uh, Alliance for Peace Building meeting, where he was talking about things that they'd learned in South Africa that might be useful in the United States as we were confronting our racial problems. And we were really torn up. It was before George Floyd, but race was really looming large. And he had five things that he was trying to transmit, and I won't remember all five, but one of them was start at the end. And what he meant by that is you have to have an image of where you want to go in order to be able to get there. And the image that they developed in South Africa was actually one where the ANC, which was one of the leading groups representing Blacks in South Africa, Stands for African National Congress, um, came out and made the statement that South Africa belonged to everyone who lives there, which is a way of saying that we accept the fact that whites belong in South Africa too. It was a huge statement because most people were thinking that if we let the blacks take over, they're going to try to push the whites out, and the whites had been there long enough. Most of them didn't have anywhere to go. They weren't citizens of the countries that they had their ancestors came from. So the blacks were saying, we recognize this is your country too. And I just keep on revisiting that and thinking how this country would be changed if we would say the United States belongs to everybody who lives here. It would be huge. And it would mean that we'd have to do our business completely differently because right now the Democrats are saying the country doesn't, but it should belong to us. And we're not leaving any space for Republicans. Republicans have legitimate concerns and they do now. This is one of my big concerns going into the midterms and certainly going into 2024. They have real legitimate concerns that if the progressives win, they will not be able to live life the way they want to live it. My dad used to live until he died in Cleveland, Ohio, and he had some fundamentalist Christian neighbors who always had a sign in front of their house 
that said something about protecting Christianity. And I already, being non-Christian myself, always laughed at that sign thinking, well, Christianity certainly isn't it any threat. They're breathing down everybody else's throat. I now realize where they're coming from with that sign. Because, yeah, a lot of Christian values, fundamental Christian values, are very much threatened by progressive views. So there's a real fear that they won't be able to live the kinds of life that they believe is a righteous life if progressives come to power. We're not leaving room for that point of view in the United States. And the opposite is certainly true. Donald Trump was not leaving room for progressive values in his United States. And I just keep on going back to the Ibrahim Rasul notion. America belongs to everybody who lives here. I wish we could get people to consider how much better a place we would be in if we were willing to say that. And, and you could say, well, that's impossible. But they did it in South Africa. And think about how oppressed the black South Africans were in apartheid. If they were able to do it there, I would think we could certainly do it here. There's another point that I've been relates to this, which is that freedom, uh, which is essential to coexistence, and it's how you have a diverse society live together in peace, requires, I've been calling it a thick skin, is that different cultural views, and they come because people in different cultural groups evolved at different rates with different circumstances, are things that people deeply, deeply believe in. So if you have one set of views on marriage and gender and sex, those kinds of issues, there are other people who have equally deeply felt issues that are very different. And part of building a coexistence-based society is people who disagree with you have to be willing, able to express their view. And that's not violence. You can express yours. It's when you try to force your views on somebody else or prevent people from expressing their views or telling their kids that this is how, based on their values, they think is the right way to live. And the kids, obviously, are free to make their own choices and so forth. But we've got to tolerate a lot more very deep-seated disagreements without getting quite so upset about it. And well, that, that's, again, a step toward making it so losers in these democratic elections have a place that they get comfortable with. And going back to my story about public conversations project and abortion, abortion clearly is one of the deepest held values that is tearing this country apart. We're watching that right now. The folks who participated in those abortion dialogues did not change their minds. But they came to understand how honest, respectable people could have different views. And one of the stories that Laura Chasen told me, Laura was one of the founders of PCP, was they got some abortion leaders 
in Boston together and they actually talked for six years and then they came out with an article in the Boston Globe and went public with their conversations. And that was really powerful. It was a way of scaling up this little tiny conversation. But when these leaders said, we've been involved in these conversations and we've come to these conclusions, it had a very strong influence on the entire Boston culture vis-a-vis abortion. But the story that I was getting confused with that is Laura was talking about another later dialogue with just ordinary people. And somebody called her up and said, I just wanted to tell you that I got pregnant. It wasn't expected. I didn't know what to do. But the first people I called were the people who participated in the dialogue with me who were on the other side. So she wasn't going to her own group to hear what her own group would say. She knew what her own group would say. She had developed such strong relationships and such trust with the people on the other side that that's who she wanted to talk to and make her decision. And that strikes me as really powerful. We can change the way people make decisions if we can get them to realize that the other side has a legitimate point too. The story of the origins of the public conversation project is, I love it. And by the way, I'll, all these things we're referencing, I'll make sure that they're all on the episode page and people can find them. And, and I'm sure I'll find most of them on your web- website. I wanted something I want to say about that in this part of like all these different folks having different roles to play in this field, you know, and like once we develop it or if we can develop this system of like Google Maps of conflicts, you know, where there's like all these different issues that there's different kinds of ways of dealing with different kinds of things. And so mediation and conflict resolution is really good about giving people a, uh, you know, an interest-based solution to like, this is what works for these people in this situation and this context and this time, you know, we can do that well. But sometimes we don't need to try to find a solution to the issue. What we need to do is understand each other. So we have, you know, the, I think they call it reflective structure dialogue now, their process from the public conversations project. You know, so we have that process that just exists to get people who really don't like each other to just understand each other's common humanity and to recognize why someone would think about that. And, you know, that powerful question of tell us a story about that can help us understand why you believe what you believe, you know, and that's a wonderful question. And, and that's a good one. We can add that one to the listening one. If you didn't know what to listen about, ask someone else that question, you know, it's great, right? I'm also interviewing various people on this podcast with other dialogue processes, right? So putting out a podcast next week about convergent facilitation and, you know, and how we can get a bunch of people to find something that's not necessarily consensus, but something that everyone is willing to live with, right? And then there's another process that the folks at this organization called the Healthy Democracy, which has been working on the... um like citizen assembly type work up in Oregon and and now a little bit in other places. And they're trying to come up with something that here are like a bunch of principles and things that 
most of the people that agree with. And we're going to send to the legislators like some interesting notes about what to include. And they can say, you know, 70% of the people want this, you know, the, the you know, and these 30% like disagree about these couple things, you know, so they're not actually even trying to get a consensus to get some information out there and really think about an issue and then deliberate well about it. So there's always different approaches. So it's not always one size fits all. But in this thread of, you know, talking about if we're going to say, starting with this idea that everyone in the, who lives in the United States belongs here and is important, right? And we have a system and a culture right now that people are trying to say that, no, but not those people, not those people. I know that, you know, we've been talking about that, that you all have been engaging in a conversation about the role of mediators and, or, you know, conflict field and kind of holding space for the different voices. And, you know, and one of the things in our field is this idea of being neutral in the face of all of these different ideas. And so Bernie Mayer has written this book called The Neutrality Trap and pointing out that neutrality might not actually, you know, and, and actually it was interesting that this idea that neutrality is dangerous, you know, goes back. I, I remember an article from like the 1990s from Laura Nader, who's really angry about mediation. And, if, and the idea is that in the face of oppression, if you go into it and you're neutral, that and you're just going to, you know, you're just going to ossify or recreate, you know, the problem. So there's this question about our neutrality. And, and then there's also the question of how do we make sure that we hold a voice for everyone? So I wonder if you all could just like unpack a little bit of that conversation that you've been having and, and how you understand that tension. There's an exercise on beyond intractability that I've used with my students for years. And what it does is ask a group to look at a controversial issue. Ideally, it involves people on all sides, facilitated, mutually respectful. What it tries to do is get people to, first of all, identify points of common ground, is what things related to this issue do we react? And then you try to lay out the points of difference, but you disagree. And then you ask, of these things we disagree on, which ones are attributable to the fact that we have different images of objective reality, the facts? And then you ask, well, about those, could we agree on some way to resolve these factual disputes? And then you ask, well, for the remaining differences, presumably are with moral issues of one's word. Are these moral differences that we could just learn to coexist and let us each live the way we want? Or, like as is the case with abortion, is this something that you want to really feel compelled to try to challenge the other side of? And then the question is, well, what's the best way to do that? What's the best way to have a constructive conflict that teaches us as a society how to better deal with these issues. And if we, so backing up a little bit and going back to the Bernie issue, we're really at a crossroads. And on the one hand, folks on both the left and the right 
are either have conceded or on the verge of conceded, that the other side is so irredeemably evil and what they believe is so intolerable that they have to do whatever it takes to make sure it's decisively defeated. That's a formula for rapid escalation and it could easily escalate into war, destroy everything. And before we take that step, we really ought to ask ourselves, is this, this image we have of why the other side's so evil really true? Or is it the result of the fact that there are all these well-known escalation and polarization dynamics that are bending our mind? And is it true that part of this enmity comes from the fact that we're deliberately being played by bad faith actors who are trying to really make us hate one another with all sorts of deceptions? And what you're not making clear is that we see Bernie, maybe we should back up a little bit and explain to your viewers who haven't read the book, Bernie wrote, Bernie Mayer and Jackie Font Guzman wrote a book called Beyond Neutrality that says that, just like you were saying, Laura Nader said, that being neutral is being a tool of the oppressors and we have to come down on the side of the oppressed and use our conflict resolution skills and processes to overcome oppression. And Guy and I feel as if the Pro the suggestions that they're making in their book very much take the view of good guys versus bad guys, win-lose framing, such that the oppressors, and they never clarify, I don't think, who oppressors are, but you get the impression that they're either whites in general or white men or white male Christians, you're never quite sure, but they are frequently referred to as white supremacists and racists, which at one point they actually say is not a pejorative term, that we can't talk about racism if you can't call people racist, and I could spend a long time on that one. But we really see them as driving their suggestions as driving the escalation spiral. And we really see it contributing to hyperpolarization. And as such, we make the argument that oppression, if, if people followed what they're suggesting in that book, number one, our field, conflict resolution field, would cease to exist. You can't, I don't think, be a successful mediator and be partial to one side. And secondly, it's going to drive the escalation spiral, which is going to get people fighting even harder, which is going to make overcoming oppression even harder. So we see things really fundamentally differently from the way they see them. They, of course, have taken said overtly in their articles about us that we are 
helping the oppressors. I got the impression that they said that we were oppressors and Bernie tried to say clearly that, no, you're not oppressors, but you're helping the oppressors. The fine line distinction that doesn't help me a whole lot. Now, this is a debate that is on the website, the Expand, read what Bernie has to say, he had to say. But Jay Rothman, we I just posted a new post from Jay Rothman that relates to this. And he kind of opened my eyes such that if I would have read this post before I wrote ours, I would have written it slightly differently. And I'm going to amend it in another post. He pointed out that nobody can be neutral, that every mediator comes into a mediation and you're going to tend to side with one side or the other for whatever reason. Somebody makes more sense. Somebody looks like you, whatever. You're, you're not going to be neutral. But that doesn't mean that you have to treat one side differently than the other. Now, he didn't use the word impartial, but I'm remembering from back in grad school, I learned the difference between neutrality and impartiality. Neutrality is what you are thinking, whether you tend to side with one side or the other. Impartiality or partiality is what you do about it. So you use the term omni-win, and I think, if I'm remembering right, Jay used the term either omni. He tells the story in, in his post about the divorce mediation where he was not neutral. He was tending to side towards the father. But he forced himself. He called it, I believe, discipline bias, that he disciplined himself to ask the wife why she felt the way she did and treat her equally so that she was able to get her deeds heard. So yeah, he wasn't neutral, but he was impartial. And that's essential for our field. If we aren't that, our field isn't going to work. And that's what I find so surprising about Bernie and Jackie's book, because this is not a book I would have expected Bernie to write because he's been an excellent mediator for, I don't know, 30 or 40 years. And he has written some books leading up to this. There was one that about, it was called Beyond Neutrality before he wrote The Neutrality Trap. And the main notion that I remember from Beyond Neutrality, I read it a long time ago, was that we can do things with our conflict skills besides mediate. We can actually give advice to one side about how they can engage with a conflict more constructively. And on that grounds, we completely agreed with them. We were advocating a long time ago something called advocacy advisors, which would be mediators who could advise parties how to construct confront conflicts more constructively. I'm really surprised that he changed so much from that to this book completely abandoning the notion of neutrality, but not picking up the notion of impartiality. Well, the thing that I think is telling, and this is a real warning, is that if people from a background like Bernie and Jackie think that things have deteriorated to the point where you have to go all in on efforts to oppose the oppressive other side, we're in a very dangerous place. Now, the other argument that we make that I think is true is that 
the hyperpolarization spiral, rather than being a side issue unrelated to oppression, it leads to the kind of dehumanization, mutual hatred, and hostility that makes oppression possible. You can't really oppress another side until you've dehumanized them. Once you've done that, then why not? <laughs> and that's where we are. And it's very, very dangerous. I'm glad you made the distinction because I think at the beginning you said that the book was Beyond Neutrality, but the Beyond Neutrality was about ten year old book at least. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Neutrality Trap is the new one. So I was, you know, thinking about this a bit, and and what first note that I made was okay, neutrality versus impartiality or omnipartiality, and and I'm a big fan of the word omnipartial. It's like the idea of being biased in favor of everyone, right? And the way I understand neutrality came into our field because there was a, you know, as we were, as our early ed beginnings of our field, it was alternative dispute resolution. So instead of going to court, you can do this. And judges are neutral. And the reason why a judge is neutral is so that they can be a, a vector, a vessel of the state, right? Like, I'm not actually making my opinion about this. I'm just doing whatever the constitution or the state or the municipality or whatever says, right? We have seen recently that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, for sure. But that's the reason why judges are neutral is because they get to be an agent for something else, right? And that's the concept, at least. And so that comes over into our field. But as you said, and some Jay Rothman said, that no, no one is neutral going into things. We're all humans. We have feelings and thoughts. And I think that if someone thinks that they're neutral, probably you should pay attention to that, right? And like that it's it's worth being aware of one's own bias and as a mediator to be like, oh, you know what? I'm really liking what this person's saying right now. Because you have to then pull yourself back to the center and make sure that, you know, everyone is at least getting, you know, human dignity, but also being respected and giving a chance to speak. There's a lot of power in being in this position and, and the, there's cascading effects of picking one side or the other, right? And there's a piece here also that I find interesting and I think this kind of comes through a lot of our conversation is where we look to find the problem of polarization or oppression is important where we think that the or source of that is. Because as you know, there are, of course, bad faith actors. There are people out there that are actually actively trying to mess up the system. But there's a way that the problem is the system that is kind of pitting us against each other, that's making it advantageous to try to win, advantageous to show how bad the other person is, advantageous to, to you know, there's, there's a systemic issue. And I think, and this is even a lesson in the world of anti-racism, is that there's a racist system that we're in and an oppressive system that we're in. And Irum Kendi says individuals can't be racist. Individuals can do racist things. <laughs> but yet it's so easy to just be like, oh, nope, that person, you know, and to so there's that system versus individual edge that I find to be really interesting to pay attention here is like if there is oppression, where is the source of that? Right. And definitely a single individual can press another single individual. And then how can we focus on their actions, you know, while still recognizing that there's a human here? Right. 
And maybe some people at some point in their life, maybe they were too far gone and they're not actually <laughs> like, we're not going to get them to change their minds in their lifetime. Right. And of course, anyone who thinks you're going to change someone's mind with a better idea is actually never works. <laughs> so if we're in a system where we're seeing that, like we're in a structure where we can maybe, you know, like address the behavior or the structural issues like that, I think is important you know, without trying to necessarily go right at the person, right? Um, I won't hear you where you and Bernie and we all agree. They make a big deal about structure and make a big deal about breaking down the oppressive structures. And we would agree with that entirely. But they don't go the next step, which is what's the structure we're going to build? which relates to Ibrahim Rasul's start at the end. Their book doesn't give me an image of what this end would be. I have the, I, I think I probably just imagined an end based on my knowledge of other people who have written in this area. And it appears to be what Craig Britain has called an exchange of elites where the current people who are oppressed get on the top of the heap and the white Christian male oppressors are on the bottom of the heap and we still have oppression. It's just different people and it's justice over time because the good guys, the bad guys, the bad guys, good guys, we switched roles. And I think that's just going to keep us at loggerheads with each other. Mm -hmm. got to come up with an image of the future that everybody will benefit from. And, and that's the problem that I have that I, I'm fine with their notion of dismantling the oppressive system. I think that's important. But before we dismantle it, we have to have an image of what we're going to put in its place and how we're going to do it. As a society, we depend upon a large number of professions where people try to the best of their ability to be neutral and objective. And as soon as they abandon quest, you know, it's a difficult thing to really be neutral. It is, they abandon the quest for objectivity and just try to use their role to reinforce some particular narrative in trouble. There, we again were building a collection of stories about news articles where people didn't do due diligence to find out the inflammatory story reporting was wrong. The same with historians, especially in social sciences. It even got to the point where politics is becoming politicized <laughs> and world, not politics, not medicine. So the world where it's considered politically racist in one way or another is movement to wipe out malaria and smallpox and some of these diseases. It, there seem to be, you know, you, we can get carried away. We have to focus on the real problem. I'm really grateful for this, you know, image for the, you know, the future, you know, piece. And, and, um, I was in a, in Seattle I, many years ago. I was in a a coalition of anti-racist whites, and 
And it was a group that was kind of teaching white people about racism. And one of the things that I saw was important for our work is like, it's it's hard to recognize as a white person that like, wow, I'm, you know, like there's a racist system that I'm in and I'm benefiting from it. And that's like a hard pill to swallow. And so there's a way of like, no, let me help you understand this. And we talked about all sorts of things. And, and but one thing I was like, do we have an end game here? <laughs> like, we're trying to fight something, but where are we trying to build? And there's an argument that first we have to do this. You know, first we have to name it and see it. And it's okay, great. Okay, but then what? And try to create a country where everyone who lives here belongs here and has a place, right? I, I thought about, you know, try to make the world as good as possible for as many people as possible. Or how can we build the world as, what's the best world we want for our grandchildren? You know, like, you know, these are some questions that we might consider. So that's one piece I wanted to add to this. Another comes from another Colorado friend over there, Martin Carcassonne, who we've been talking about a bit and the dialogue runs the Center for um, Public Dialogue or Public Deliberation at, at Colorado State University. He has this thing about principled impartiality, and it's like holding impartiality with the importance of making sure that there's quality information and in arguments, you know, like, like thoughtful, you know, objective, you know, information and holding, you know, like the democratic values of we all kind of need a place to be here. Like we need the small d democratic values, right? Of just everyone has a vote here, you know, and, and just holding that, those are, that's a tension and it's not necessarily easy. One thing that I wanted to add, and the reason I was looking at John Paul Lederach's Preparing for Peace is, you know, when there's a power imbalance and power imbalances are real. And so when we're trying to, you know, don't want to exacerbate or lock in or perpetuate an, you know, unbalanced system. In the conflict transformation model that he talks about, he pulls from Adam Curl's graph and and basically at some point you can't go to negotiation until you've got the power balance first. And so I'm really glad you brought up this idea of like advocacy advisors or you know like the idea of how do you actually empower people like to do their conflict better. <laughs> You know, like you have to balance the power, right? Because if someone has a bunch of power and someone doesn't have power, bringing them to the negotiation table prematurely is unfair. It's like, and this is why protest is powerful and important because it gets, you know, the people you're trying to talk to to pay attention. Which is sub note why true nonviolent protest is important versus just any protest or protest that's just not being violent. And, you know, because if you have framed the person as an enemy, then by the time you get to the place where you balance the power, then you can't actually negotiate with them because, no, you're not allowed to talk to them. They're the bad guys. And and you have to make so that's where you have to have that nonviolence and that, or that omnipartiality or saying like, oh, I, you know, we are trying to change these people because we love them and we want to bring them into the community of, you know, goodness or whatever. And. So if you lose your ability to care for the for that those who you're trying to change, then you're not going to be able to negotiate with them later, even if you can get the power imbalanced. And if but if your power isn't imbalanced, is not in balance, 
you do need to do that first. And if it's not the mediator to do that, find someone else who can do that for them, you know? And I do think there's a role to play of teaching people who are in conflict and a lot of the organizations out there are struggling in the struggle. They want to be in the conflict. That's the point of what they're trying to do. They're going to go fight the man and, you know, and fight for this and fight for that. And, but it, are you guys do? Is it effective? Is anyone listening to you? You know, how can we make you do better at fighting? I think that our field could also really help people fight better, right? In a certain way, like we could actually help people have more quality conflict. You know, even if they're not ready to go to the peace table, I'm gonna like just draw on this guy named David Brubaker, so uh, who I met at the ACR conference. At, the last one before the COVID apocalypse. By the way, which I also is where I heard Bernie Mayer speak. He spoke remotely and he actually was telling the story about needing to fight and advocate for a situation around you know, sexual abuse and the church and like needing to actually not be neutral, which I found, you know, so it's like a little bit of a precursor to this, you know, like that. But anyways, David Brubaker, he's a, has worked with congregations. He's at Eastern Mennonite University as well, where, where John Paul Lederach is. And he works with congregations that get polarized. And he starts with, like, affirm the dignity of everyone involved. Your own dignity, your right to a voice, as well as the other person's dignity and, you know, right to have a voice. And or what we said at the beginning about listening, right? Like, if I don't agree with someone, like, what would it be like to assume there might actually be something important that they're trying to say in all of this crazy noise? I think we can really listen to people and have empathy and acknowledgement of them without needing to come to full agreement. We can actually be moved by them and I always say when like in listening, it's like empathy can be hard sometimes if you don't really see what they're at, but at least you can see that this is a human who's having a hard time in front of you. You can say, I see you're really angry. I see you're scared. I see you're sad. I don't agree with any of the things you're saying right now, but let me understand what like, you know, let me just tell you, I see you. And if you don't include them, they're going to include themselves on their own terms. They're going to come smash into the Capitol, whatever it takes, you know, like they're going to come and get their voice heard one way or another. So you might as well, you know, try to figure out how to, you know, hold them and the web of relationships and which is, I guess, part of the moral imagination. This is the thing I cite from your website most often because you guys have the best description of the moral imagination. Like <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, because I'm always like, what are the three principles or the four principles? But one of them is recognizing that you're in a web of relationships that includes your enemies. Yeah. Can't get out of that. Yeah. And we use the term pragmatic empathy. And what that is, is, is isn't full-blown emotional empathy where you really feel entirely at one with where the other person's coming from. It's more pragmatic. It's going to be better for you to hear them to understand them and to relate to them and treat them as human because then they're going to turn around and do the same thing for you 
So there's reasons to empathize that are completely pragmatic, that don't have anything to do with hugging them or, or agreeing with them or changing your mind. The other thing you are likely to find out is that you're doing things unintentionally that really make them mad that you don't really need to do, that are just inflaming the situation. Yeah, if you want someone to listen to you and they're not, Listen to them exhaustively. <laughs> That's a really great way to get them to listen. Make it embarrassing for them how well they've been heard. <laughs> it's got to be real listening, too. There, there's a lot of going through the motion. Yeah, we're, we're supposed to listen to you, but you know, you're full of it. To listen and open yourself up to the possibility of being persuaded. And listen not just to the things you disagree with, but the things that say hard things about you. Yeah. Reflective listening is such a key here, right? I mean, if you can say, this is what you're saying, and you can say it back to them, and they say, yes, yes. that's what I'm saying. And if you rinse, wash, repeat, just do it again and again, you know, until you can get the person to say, mm-hmm, yes, you understand what I'm saying now. And, I know, and then you're like, okay, well... Uh, let me talk. Let me talk about that now, you know, because now you actually have something actual to respond to, and so right. pragmatic, right? And uh, so thank you for that. So as a way of kind of landing the plane here, and I appreciate you all just getting into this and taking extra time. I, I sometimes I'm overwhelmed about the all the many many issues, but then I'm also overwhelmed by just all the amazing people out there trying to do all these great things. And I, I, I collection. I mean, you all have collected untold number of articles and links and people. And I've been collecting hundreds of organizations, people, ideas, you know, videos. It's, it's, there's so much out there. So I'm curious, oh God, there's two kind of different questions here. So we can take them one by one. One is people who are moved by this conversation, who want to get involved and want to help participate in this bigger change and like really contributing to dealing with these complex problems, you know, of all walks of life, you know, police, media, you know, railroad workers, whatever, whoever you are, conflict practitioners, dialogue practitioners, what advice would you have for them? Or, you know, what would you ask them to do? And then the other question, just, to be, just so you know where we're going, is what are you doing right now? Like, what are you looking towards at this moment and this time in your, in your life and your career and, and and so far as you've talked about this idea of this like Google Maps and this like you know mass you know massively parallel peace building like like and or decision making or conflict resolving, what ideas do you have about how we can kind of come together and start actually moving this kind of stuff forward? Because you know we've been trying for a long time. The first thing is that we have an online discussion. It's, we're convening on this very topic. We invite your listeners to get involved with this. It's in a bright red box at the top of our website, beyondintractability.org. There's a Substack newsletter that's associated with it that we're trying so it's easier for people to follow things. And we want to raise all of these issues, and we want to try to bring together what we collectively know. And I think the other sort of closing thought, and this was something I explained to my conflict students at the first day of class, actually, is that conflict is the engine of social learning. 
the basic conflict interaction is that somebody says, you know, the world in which we live together could be better if we do this instead of that. And the other person might say, hey, yeah, that's a great idea to do it. And there's no conflict in it. But sometimes they come back and say, I don't think that's right. You should do something else. And what we're really about here is making wise, equitable, efficient, nonviolent decisions about which of these various changes will actually make our society better. And conflict's not one of these things that you want to avoid and suppress. You want to harness its power to deal with a lot of really tough things. So, stemming from that to your question about what viewers who want to do something should do, we talk about areas of influence. And you need to figure out where you have an area of influence. Most of us don't have much influence beyond our communities, but we do have the ability to have influence in our communities. We do have ability to have influence in our organizations. We do have ability to have influence in our family. So identifying your areas of influence and identify the issue or maybe a couple of issues that you care most about. We can't, none of us can take on all of it, but you can find something in your community that you can care about. And then start engaging with people on it. But again, I can go back to what I taught at the end of my conflict skills class. And I always said to my students, if you go out of here and in five or 10 years, you only remember two words from this class, two words, I want you to remember respect and listen. So I would tell people to go out and treat everybody who is interested in this issue with respect. And we've talked about listening enough already. We folks listening to this know what we're talking about. Listen to them and try then to come up with a plan that will meet as many instances as possible. Now, one thing I'll also point out was right when Trump was elected in 2016, we got a lot of inquiries from former students and from neighbors and friends who said, what can I do? They suddenly were very concerned and they wanted to do something. And we created a part of Beyond Intractability that is called Things You Can Do to Help. And there's we never fleshed it out as much as I wish we did, but there's about 25 pages there, all really concise. They're condensed onto one page of just 25 different things that ordinary people can do to help diffuse escalated polarized conflicts that are surrounding them in their communities and their organizations and their families. So I direct folks to the section on the Beyond Attractability website that's called Things You Can Do to Help. It's got a section on the front page. It's got a blog. If you go to the blog listing in the menu, you pull down the Things You Can Do to Help blog. But we're hoping to expand that at some point. But that's something that will give folks ideas about things that simple things that they can do like listening and treating the other side with respect. And then there's 23 other ones.
Now, they're also, and again, on the same website, there's a lot of information about more sophisticated things that you can do, for which you'd have to build some skills, develop relationships, get involved in organizations, and start to work on not just the sort of big getting everybody together dialogue, but actually start dappling with particular conflict dynamics that are causing us trouble and working systematically through all of that. And then there's the old principle that when you find yourself in a hole, and we all are in a sense here, the first thing to do is quit digging. And there's a lot that we inadvertently do course of day-to-day -day life to further drive actual hostility and tension that we cannot do. I just heard the term yesterday from a colleague uh, who's also a past guest on the podcast of cumulative extremism or symbiotic radicalization, yeah. you know, and so far as like each side, you know, like that digging, you know, where you can keep on, you know, like... If I'd radicalize because you're radicalized, then you're going to radicalize. So thank you for that. The stop digging. I really, that's really so simple. And I'll definitely make sure that there's a link, you know, for people to do like, here's things that you can do. One of the things that's great about your website is that people can engage in all of these conversations. If you have something that you want to contribute to this, there's a place to do that on your website. If you want to be part of the conversation, there's a place to do that. If you want to, there's a lot of ways to get involved through your website. And I love that. So obviously there's a lot more here and I think that we'll be having more conversations as we go forward. And I just really want to thank you both for all the work you've been doing for decades here and, and for also taking the time to talk with me today. Well, I enjoyed it. Uh, anything much. that you can do to let people know, tell us about the website and the problem we all share. We are greatly appreciative of that too. I was just saying that to someone yesterday or the other day that it's like, but why would we want people who don't necessarily know the answers to be involved in the solutions? Like, because like together we know more than we do individually. And that was something you said earlier on about like getting your ego out of the way, right? Like it's like we as mediators and people in this field, we need to check ourselves anytime we have the illusion that we're going to come in there and fix the thing and solve the problem like no we are just not only is that counterproductive but we need to hold the space for people to figure out where they want to go and so recognize both your role to play in this but also recognize that you don't have the only answer okay. <laughs> yes wow cool thank you this is wonderful oh, great well thank you, you. Enjoyed it. thank you so much for listening to the omni win project podcast i am so grateful to today's guest for being on today's podcast. And if you liked what they had to say and you want to learn more about them or any of the things we discussed in the episode today, check them out in your show notes right there on your podcast app or come on down to omniwinproject.com where you can get even more information. You can find a video version of this podcast as well as the transcript. And there are many more episodes that are going to be coming soon. So don't forget to subscribe to the podcast right now and share it with a friend while you're at it. As you go into the rest of your day, I invite you to remember that we are all co-creating our future right now and we all have a role to play in the whole. Thank you for listening to the Omni Win Project podcast. Have a wonderful day.